Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest today is Sean Roberts, the COO of Orchard, a prop tech company changing the way homes are bought and sold that raised a $69 million Series C late last year. Previously, Sean served as Orchard CFO, and prior to Orchard, Sean was an investor at TPG and began his career at Goldman Sachs. Sean's biggest lesson centers around the different mindset required as he successfully navigated that transition from investor to operator. Sean, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here and thanks for having me. Great. Uh, Love to hear a little bit about your background and and what's led you to your current role at Orchard. Yeah, for sure. So I began my career, like many other people, uh, as an investment banking analyst. So I started started out at Goldman Sachs and their financial institutions group. I joined there right before the financial crisis. So like literally we came out of training and Lehman Brothers collapsed. And I spent the next two years working on a ton of really interesting distress in the financial system between the U.S. and Canada, uh, which was a phenomenal experience, learned a ton, ultimately concluded that I wanted to be on the principal investing side of things. So I made my way from investment banking over to private equity, was part of a large private equity firm for a number of years initially on their corporate buyout area and then joined their team that was established about a decade ago to focus on real estate private equity, which is a nascent platform for the firm. So we built that up, raised a fund, invested in a bunch of really interesting types of operationally intensive real estate businesses. So think about a physical you know, real estate business where you've got operational complexity and some kind of service delivery. And that was really what I found to be really fun because it was the nexus of the built world and also operational complexity, which I just, I find really intellectually stimulating. So that was a ton of fun. Love doing that. Got to a place in 2018 where I wanted to get even closer to the operations of something and went through a bit of a process in in my own mind of figuring out where I wanted to go next after private equity and ended up getting connected to the two founders of Orchard in the spring of 2018. And those are Cor Cunningham and Phil DeGeezy and really liked them as people and really liked the vision for the business. And so I decided to come on board shortly after the company had raised its Series A and was employee 2021, something like that. And uh, it's been a, you know, it's been a ton of fun since then. Uh, Like we've scaled from 20 people to now a little more than 500 and the business has gone really, really well over the last three years. So it's been a ton of fun, but yeah, that's, that's my background. We'd love to hear your why Denver story and what you found since you've moved here. Yeah. So uh, I moved to Denver about a year ago from New York city and and prior to that San Francisco. So I've sort of been on both coasts and now I've landed in the, in the middle. Um, And and mainly the, the move to Denver for me was a personal one where my wife and I are both big skiers and we actually originally got to become friends over skiing. And so we, you know, we wanted to be in Colorado close to the mountains and we're both fairly outdoorsy. We enjoy a lot of the different things that are 
you know, really readily accessible around Denver. So it, it's just a really good fit for us personally. And so we're both happy to be there and life, life is good in, in Denver. So it's really like a personal lifestyle choice, but with all the benefits of you know, the connect, the connection that we have from technology, it's almost as though, and, and also working from home over the last year, it's almost as though I'm still with my colleagues in New York and it's pretty seamless. And our whole team is really geographically distributed. Like we have folks in New York, Austin, Atlanta, Denver, a few different cities in, in Texas outside of Austin. And, and it's all one team and it works really, really well because of how great Zoom and other technologies are. So yeah, it's, it's just a great place to be. Yeah, Sean, from a, a tech perspective, you know, I moved here uh, from the Bay Area about two years ago, and it sounds like you've seen sort of the tech ecosystems and the investment ecosystems, both in New York and the Bay Area as well. Um, I'd love to hear your take on what you've seen on, on how Denver compares so far and what you see as the strengths here. Great question. It's certainly, it's a smaller ecosystem where it seems like everybody knows everybody else in Denver, which is great, but it's also a growing ecosystem where there's a lot of energy and the, the thing that I, I think separates the people who are part of that ecosystem in Denver versus a New York or a San Francisco or a Boston is people who are in Denver choose to be there and they're happy to be there. Whereas folks on the coast, they're sort of there by default. That's where the job was or, you know, they, they for whatever reason, they went to school there, whatever it is, they, they sort of stayed on the coast and they're there by default rather than by choice. And I think if you choose to live somewhere and you're happy to live there, you have a very different sort of attitude and approach to things, which is really healthy and constructive. And I, I think a lot of the folks in, in the Denver ecosystem benefit from that. Yeah, I found a, a very similar thing. I was talking with another recent uh, transplant and we've sort of termed it as like the, the opt-out crowd, right? Is You've made a very <laughs> intentional choice to be part of this community. And I think it's led to a lot of really great people with a lot of the same intentions for being here, building companies and how they like to interact and engage with the, with each other. Um, so now Absolutely. let's jump to the main part of our, our discussion today. would love to get back to what's your biggest lesson and how did you learn it? Yeah. I mean, it, it's really the sort of perfection is the enemy of progress, the Winston Churchill quote, which is this notion of in a startup, you have to move fast with imperfect information and be comfortable doing that and be comfortable taking smart risks. And when you're coming from an environment like institutional investing, where you don't have the same latitude to take risk and the decision frequency is very different. Uh, for me, that was really initially very uncomfortable. And, you know, I wanted everything to be perfect and the analysis to be very rigorous and thoughtful with all the numbers tied out and vetted and comfortable about having it all packaged up in a PowerPoint deck, which is kind of silly in startup land. And, and it's getting away from that, um, that approach and being comfortable with making decisions on the fly and making them the right decisions. And it requires a lot more intuitive judgment that's still very well informed by data and as much information as you can gather quickly, but the velocity of those decisions is just so much faster and the consequences of those decisions are apparent much sooner. So Sean, we'd love to, I think that's a really important lesson. I think, you know, I came from the strategy management consulting world. So sort of similar degree of rigor and presentation, you know, before going and founding apartment list and learned a similar lesson. I would love to hear 
Uh, two examples from you. One time when acting with imperfect information didn't go is expected um, and sort of, you know, anything you learned on how to act uh, better with imperfect information. And then a second time where you took what felt like a big risk at the time in acting with imperfect information. In our business, a lot of what we do is trying to grow the company really quickly while managing risk. And for us, what that means is we're trying to price real estate really accurately and not overpay for it, but also not underpay for it. And that requires a lot of discipline from our data science team, our underwriting team, our field team. Like there's a lot of different people that have to come together to make those decisions well. And when we were initially setting up the way that our valuation models and processes worked, we hadn't built out all of the very rigorous data science and machine learning technologies that we have now. And so we were relying a lot more on imperfect information from really like rules of thumb or common wisdoms from brokers and appraisers and other folks that have bought single family residential real estate. And, you know, we took those to be true because it was the best information we had for a lot of different underwriting decisions at the time. And so one really good example of that is there's a common truism um, among brokers and appraisers, at least in some parts of Texas where we were operating at the time, that having a home on a corner lot is a good thing and it's additive to the value of that property. So we had calibrated our underwriting models to add a little bit more value to a corner lot property, which seemed very reasonable because that's what everyone was saying to do. And that was completely wrong. And so we kept seeing that we were overpricing those properties a little bit. And there was a very consistent pattern that was coming out in the results. So we saw that, we dug into it, we did what we do on pretty much every time we see something not going the way that we want it to, to go. We, we do a very rigorous deep dive and ask ourselves the five whys of, you know, why are corner lots being overpriced and just going deeper and deeper into that. And what we concluded with the benefit of data science through our machine learning models was it's actually completely wrong. And the common wisdom was backwards and corner lots are actually typically a detractor to value. So this notion of we had moved really quickly with imperfect information before we built out all the systems to really have the right information and it got us the wrong answer. And it cost us some money on some of the homes that we overpriced early on, but we learned from that and it's become one of the cornerstones um, cornerstone corner lot. That's a little ironic, but one of the <laughs> cornerstones of our, our approach, which is, you know, just this continuous learning of, of when we get something wrong, like drill into it, figure out why, get the right information when it matters. And sometimes the information doesn't matter as much, but when you're taking principal risk on, on things like properties, there's real dollars involved and you gotta, you gotta learn from it and get it right. So that's sort sure. of the getting think, it wrong example. I, I feel less good hearing that lesson because I'm sitting in my house right now that is currently on a corner lot. So I'm going to have to to think about what that means long term for, for our house value here. Uh, <laughs> well, but it's really all very situational. Some are worth more, some are worth less. And that's where the, the data science comes in. It all depends on the, the specifics of the, the home and the neighborhood that well, it's good. in. Maybe I'll have to get your team to look at that for us. Uh, what yeah. about a time when you took what felt like a really big risk with imperfect information and it worked out really well? for you? What did you, what was the specific example and what big lessons did you take from that? Um, I would say joining Orchard, the initial decision to go from 
um, you know, a senior role at a large private equity firm to join a series, just barely series A startup with 20 people and really no, no, at the time there was nascent product market fit, but really no demonstrable economic model fit at the time. So it was all very theoretical. And so the information was completely non-existent, not only imperfect, it was, it was, it was a hypothesis of what this company could become. And to go from a world where all the decisions that I had made in my career up to the point of, you know, matriculating to a relatively senior level in, in private equity had been based on a fairly knowable set of outcomes, at least in the near to medium term. But coming to a Series A backed company, you don't have that certainty of outcomes. And there were a lot of factors that were leaning favorable for what that business would become. And I believed in the market, the team, the concept and the business, the problem we're focusing on solving, all that made sense to me. But ultimately, it was it was a vision that we had to go and build. And that was probably the most the biggest decision that I've made with my life with very imperfect or non-existent information that's worked out really well so far. Awesome. Sean, you know, one of the things that can be scary, obviously, about making decisions with imperfect information is what happens when you get it wrong, right? And within a company, you know, there, there's a lot of worry, particularly with junior employees, people trying to really make their way in their career. Hey, I, I don't have that much information. I've got to go make this call. And what if I get it wrong? How do you guys deal with that at Orchard? How do you create the right culture to enable people to make those information, uh, those decisions with with lack of information? Yeah, it's a hard balance to get right. And we we talk a lot internally about one-way doors and two-way doors, which is something that I think Jeff Bezos from Amazon spent some time talking about. And the concept there is a one-way door, you can only go through one way and you can't come back through it. And so in a two-way door, you can come back through. And really every decision that we make can be framed through that bifurcation of one-way or two-way doors. And to the extent that something is a one-way door with really high consequences to the business, you can't make those decisions quickly and decentralize them. And those are under, generally understood what types of decisions those are in, in the company. And for things that are two-way doors where you can test something and take a little bit of risk and then unwind it, those can be delegated and be a lot more distributed throughout the company to learn and experiment with doing different things. But you do have to have a culture of that's okay. It's okay to take a risk and to fail and to learn from it. And the learning is really the key part. It's not about, well, we, we tried this, it didn't work, and we're going to point fingers at one another about wasted time or resources or a bad outcome or a frustrated customer or whatever it is. It's about, well, we tried this, it didn't play out the way that we wanted it to. What are we going to learn? And, and really sitting down to have that conversation and debriefing about the key lessons and how we adopt those into whatever it is moving forward in the company that, that can benefit from that, that education and making sure that that is part of the culture in all parts of the company is really important. And it's a core part of the fabric of what we've built at Orchard, I, I believe. I, I love that you guys are, are so thoughtful about that. I mean, I think it's, it's funny. You meet with a lot of founders that people say that, hey, we want to have a culture of taking risks, right? We, we want it to be okay to fail, but they haven't really internalized what it actually feels like when you make a decision and things are falling apart because of that decision and how do you react is really what's going to uh, you know, create that culture and making sure that you don't just go blame, you don't 
you know, there's not negative consequences, assuming a person actually made that decision in a thoughtful way. And it was just a risk and it, it didn't work out. Right. Um, so I think that, that's one of those interesting dynamics. Uh, other question I had for you was around, you said, you know, given your background, you came into Orchard, it was kind of a, a maybe a difficult transition going from the investment mindset of everything's got to be buttoned up and perfect to more of a, a, of a, a fast paced kind of uh, imperfect decision-making process. How do you help new team members coming on that might have a background that you do make that transition even more quickly and learn from the experience you've had? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And now we've had a few folks join from fancy three-letter private equity firms and big investment banks and consulting firms join our company. So there, there's been several folks that have gone through that transition. And really the key thing is to tell them that it, it's okay to not have everything buttoned up as much as you would like. And getting to the... You, you may be used to getting to the 95th percentile in everything you do, but here it's okay to get to the 80th percentile and get there more quickly. And it's really much more about this sort of the 80-20 rule um, and being able to get insight quickly from the information that you do have and being able to make a call and have impact quickly. Like it's not about having a perfectly buttoned up analysis to put in front of a client or an investment committee to then make a decision. It's you're making the decision yourself. So what do you actually need to be able to have enough to be dangerous to know that you're probably making the right decision? And also to know for certain decisions to slow down if it is a one-way door and it's something that is going to have a large consequence if you do get it wrong. Those are the decisions that you have to have the self-awareness to know, okay, I've got to slow down and really get this right. And making sure that folks that are coming in from those environments know how to differentiate between the decisions where you can go quickly that are two-way doors and you can take a little risk and get them wrong and that's okay versus the decisions where they need to hit the brakes, slow down and think them through. And I think getting, getting folks comfortable with operating that way, it does take some time and it does take some conversations around establishing norms of doing this together and also seeing, I think for folks that are coming in from those more structured institutional environments, for them to see people that have been in those more structured institutional environments being very comfortable operating um, at the 80th percentile rather than the 95th percentile is also comforting too. So it's sort of lead by lead by example or lead from the front and, and show them that it's okay to not have, you know, every I dotted and T crossed as long as you're getting to the, the best answer you can quickly. Great. I, I think that's such an important, um, such an important lesson for all startups, right? In early stage companies, we, on the investment side at the early stage, we're having to make similar type decisions, right? Of companies. And it's similar. It sounds yeah, like when totally. you joined, when you joined Orchard, right? Where you see maybe the kernel of product market fit or, or, or opportunity, um, and really have to take that, that leap. So, um, Sean, really appreciate you coming on. This was this was really fantastic. Where can folks uh, get in touch with you or follow what what you're up to? Yeah, well, so our company's website is www.orchard.com, and you can look me up on LinkedIn as well. And feel free to send me a direct message. And uh, you know, would love to connect with other folks in the Denver startup and venture capital ecosystem. So reach out anytime. Great, thanks, Sean. 